So we've spent uh, 12 weeks in preparation of entering this sutta. I brought it with me tonight, which is a good sign. <laughs> but it's a little bit like having to learn how to swim through class lectures. You know, when you plunge into the water, all hell breaks loose, right? <laughs> it's like, what am, what am I supposed to be doing now? <laughs> so uh, when we start actually working with these different exercises within the suttas, we'll keep bringing to mind the different points that were made in the first 12 classes <clears throat> to keep us uh, aligned with the point and purpose and intention of what we're doing. We can very easily get lost, especially when there is this enormous historical context out of which the sutta is held. And deviation from that context feels like you're breaking a t one of the commandments. Uh, and so we're going to be breaking a lot of the commandments. Because unless this thing has some flexibility and ease and livability, then it's not going to be applicable to our lives. And we want it to be just that. So we're going to be making this relevant to our active and engaged life because the first word in the sutta is bhikkhu. Bhikkhu means monk. He was speaking to monks. Our life is not monkish or nunnish. And therefore, we have to broaden the expanse of this sutta so that it includes our own range of activities. <clears throat> now, uh, again, just remembering that all of the spiritual journey <clears throat> is to um, discern the difference between mind activity and awareness. Now, what I mean by that is that from day one, when you sit down, to pay attention, you'll notice that the mind is distorting what you're paying attention to in terms of its monologue about what is occurring as well as the, the object itself. <clears throat> and uh, so that this sense of mental activity that we bring to our meditation is really the, we have to clean it out, we have to clean it up. And the spiritual journey is really the journey of cleaning up the noise so that we're, we don't believe it in the same way we did when we first sat down. Uh, so that there's a selfless awareness that is the fruit of the practice, not a self-binding awareness. <clears throat> now, if I could just use the uh, analogy that's not very accurate but works a little bit, is if you lived in a region of the country that was forever uh, overcast, <laughs> we won't name any places, but, uh, and uh, every day you would get up and uh, if you weren't paying much attention, you would just assume that the nature of the sky was overcast, wouldn't you? You would, in fact, you would, wouldn't consider the sky being anything other than the clouds that cover it. And uh, not being a very introspective person, uh, most of us, when we begin our uh, meditation, have that same thought. We don't really know the difference between the direct 
uh, the direct experience, the perception of something, and what we're bringing to it, the overcast, the cloudiness of the sky. And we're not actually very interested, or many of us aren't very interested in seeing that difference. And most people in the world live very comfortably within their overcast sky, just assuming that one is the same as the other. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> now if we're if we knew or developed a little suspicion that there was some vastness that we were missing by just seeing the sky as being overcast, then we would start looking more uh, particularly at what that nature of clouds were. Right? And so as we get going into meditation, we start looking at the nature of our mental activity in relationship to the object we're trying to perceive. And the first step on that is to discern the difference between the mental activity and the object that is seen within bare attention. And at first there's a difference. There feels like a difference. There's a difference between the sky and the clouds that the sky holds. But with a little more introspection, a little more depth of, of sophistication and maturity, we began to see that the sky and the clouds are really one and the same thing. That the composition of the clouds and the composition of the sky really don't vary by much, a little more, more moisture in one area. But basically the sky is the clouds and the clouds are the sky. And in the same way, as we venture into our overcast mind, our noisy mind, the object that we perceive and the noise we bring to it at some point hold the same basic raw material. And then you can perceive the sky very differently than you would have when it was blocking or interfering with the space that from time to time you can get a sense of when the clouds part. When the sky is seen as being the same as the clouds, we don't make much ado over the cloud coverage. When we think that the clouds are different than the sky, we make a lot of ado over it. And we can't wait for the sunny days to enjoy you know, the spaciousness that the sky offers. But after a while, we begin to see the, the the essence of both are the same. And therefore, if the sky is cloudy, the sky is cloudy. And when it's not cloudy, it's not cloudy. And that doesn't disrupt anything. And so, as we sit down to enter our mindfulness and place them and apply them to these particular exercises, we're going to find that our mindfulness contains both cloud and sky both noise and awareness. Everybody's mindfulness does, because mindfulness, by its very nature, which I've talked about for the last four weeks, <laughs> is that mindfulness contains a mixture of noise and clarity, sky and clouds. And we're not to the point where we have discerned sufficiently that the difference between those, one, nor have we fully understood 
that the sense of me that is being mindful is the noise that creates the clouds that cover the sky. And that very slowly and with a lot of patience, a lot of patience, and an enormous amount of perseverance and uh, wise intention, we begin to see that this thing called noise and that which we are perceiving are all being held by the same sky. And at first, the sky seems very different than the noise, but as these things are actually perceived directly, we begin to understand that the noise in the sky are of the same essence. The Buddha said all things are of the same essence. All things are of one essence. And so that is the journey, that is the spiritual journey. And each of these exercises will hold a variety of, of paradoxes within that spiritual journey for us to, to um, ascertain and to figure. And this sense of thought from the beginning, especially when we're going to be entering the foundation of the body, we begin to perceive that thought has decided what is and what is not the body. It's made that demarcation, that boundary, very clear to us. And we have decided that everything within our skin is called body, and everything outside of our skin is external to body. And we have accepted that cultural indictment of ourselves as being separated by skin from external environment. So there's the internal and there's the external. And we reside very comfortably within that uh, border. And the body line, when we are quiet enough, because if it's induced by thought, it has to be continually asserted by thought that this body is here and everything else is out there, and until it becomes just an affirmed assumption in everything we look at and how everything we believe and so we rest very very comfortably within that assumption and yet when we are quiet I mean really quiet and our meditation our mindfulness is not carrying the assumption with it by when it enters the body, knowing exactly where it is, and this is my knee, and this is that, and oh, that's the pain again, and all the contaminating noise, when it's very quiet and it isn't contaminating what it sees with the noise, by God, it's the, the line of demarcation, the line of boundary, boundary line, simply is not there. Now we come out of that moment of union, and we assert the same boundary that we have always asserted because it's a, almost a genetic disposition for us to do that after eons of practice. Uh, and we just assumed that we had forgotten it or just that it slipped out of our mind during that point when we were in meditation, where we were in clear seeing. <clears throat> 
But the real truth of things is that everything's tucked into this body line and everything outside is not. And when I have made that assumption, when I have decided that that's the fact, the reality, then what comes with that fact is birth, old age, suffering, and death. Just a small thing. <laughs> because what is there to die unless we have assumed that fact? What is there that's born unless we have assumed that fact? That fact predisposes us to the laws of death, predisposes us to the laws of separation. Don't assume that fact, and those laws fall to the wayside. Isn't it interesting? But because there's an enormous appeal to hold ourselves within the peanut shell of our body, the incrustation of our belief, that this feels as if it's an almost impossible task to escape it, when really it is a simple releasing of the thought that contains us. So we're already making headway on this question. So we see that what we really have to do is question our assumptions. And that all of these exercises are an attempt to question the assumptions we have. Not to lose ourselves in the exploration of the object, but to look at what the noise we're bringing to the object, the coloration, the clouds, the confusion, our noise brings to the object. And that this, the clarification of the object will come when there is no more noise that we're imparting to the object. We're bringing the boundary to the object. The object doesn't hold that. All of us have had the experience of being on an airplane at 20,000 feet on a clear sky, clear day, and looking down and not even knowing what state we're in, let alone the boundaries that divide that state. The Earth just looks completely uh, like a union, a single thing. Or some of those beautiful pictures of the Earth from outer space. Or it looks like, wow, that planet is so beautiful. I bet everybody gets along there, <laughs> says the Martian alien. Right. So everything, this all begins with our ability to listen anew. In fact, all of meditation begins with our ability to listen anew. You see, we make the, we falter and we make the mistakes of trying to research the assumptions we carry, rather than to question the assumptions we carry. And the meditation, when we haven't questioned the assumptions we carry into the way we're looking, will just recertify those assumptions, because they will have never been questioned. And so when we're taking on this sense of body, there's a lot at stake in this thing. There's, but there's, and there's an equal amount of freedom within it, space within it. If I can go to my cosmology series, which I think is very relevant. The material of your body, the material, the uh, elements, 
of the body are actually born from exploding stars. The elements. You are the essence of stars. All of us are. There are only, there's only one element that was pre-existing, and that was hydrogen. And as stars burn hydrogen into helium, and then as the bigger the star is, they move helium into all the different elements until they explode those elements out into the wonders and the winds of the cosmos to become within the gravitational pull of spheres and orbits like our own, to be incorporated into the ground and ourselves born from that ground. We are literally the stuff of stars. And therefore, to the examination, the willingness to examine the essence of ourselves is the willingness, is the access to the whole universe. And the laws that govern the universe, physical laws, are the same laws that govern us here, the ones that are 14 billion years out. Same laws that govern materiality, that govern form, that govern energy, gravity, same as right here on this earth. In fact, if you take the very smallest thing in the universe, a quark or something, a string, and you take the very largest thing, the size of the universe itself, we are exactly in the middle between the largest and the smallest. Is it by accident that that has occurred? Or is it an invitation to look inwardly at both the smallest and the largest and come to the understanding of where and what holds each? We can understand the laws that govern the universe by bringing our attention inward and seeing the very laws that govern our mind and body. But it all starts from our willingness to listen anew. We have been programmed so deeply, genetically and culturally, psychologically, spiritually, that we have lost our innocence. We have lost our wonder. And yet you can so easily see the wonder by looking out in space, but we don't see it when we look into the body. Somehow the body doesn't contain the wonder. It contains that lumpy thing called me, which I've never appreciated too much. But look at the stars. <laughs> what is this body? Really? What is this? Because this is an embodied practice. I hope we all realize that this is an embodied practice. This is a, a, a practice born from a complete embodied experience within. And Buddhists, in general, don't have a very good relationship to their body. They look at it almost contemptuously. It's, if they have anything, it's with their breath. And they say, well, yeah, I'm, I know my body. I'm, I feel my breath coming in now. Well, the breath is a tangential reference to the body. To come into this thing full-heartedly and to embody ourselves once more. To know this thing for the wonder that it is. Not for this, 
for the terror that we think it to be is to welcome ourselves into that innocence once more. And this thing will not show forth its wonder unless we bring that innocence to it. If it's like, oh God, that pain again, then where do we think that's going to take us? You think that looking diligently at, oh, that pain again is going to take us out of that assumption? See, this is an encouragement to see much, much more than our limited expectations and assumptions will allow. And that's why the sutta itself can contain so many references and editorials and commentaries that I hope you just throw all that stuff away. Let's just go into it. In fact, the words of this sutta are not just the words of the Buddha, I don't believe. I believe they've been added to and amended and over the generations in which there were oral transitions. And if you were a monk that had a particular view, you just added a line to your to your to the sutta in oral form, and then all of a sudden the Buddha said it. So we have to look at this thing from our own experience to be able to really qualify what is workable, what is true, and what is not. And that's one of the Buddha's main reference points, is that self-reliance that we all need. We're not depending upon him or anything to make this journey work. It's that self-reliance, that independence, that he promoted, one of his chief pillars of his teaching. Now we can walk into this thing and look at it anew. Investigating those laws. Being still with the body. Beginning by accepting what we see because stillness doesn't have an aversive factor. Stillness is still. Stillness isn't still with aversion. It's just still. And innocence and listening is derived from stillness. And so when we're innocently seeing, we're not bringing our aversion to. And we embrace it. First, we live in it. We have to first welcome ourselves. We have to have the intention to want to come into this thing. There's, no one can force you into your body. And if you have made a pact to leave it, and you aren't going to re-examine the pact on why you left it, then there's very little chance of you following my instructions and getting back into yourself. It has to come from each one of us, our willingness. OK, let me come back into this thing. I don't care what the magazine photos look like. My body's never going to look like that. So be it. I can still be, live as comfortably in it as anyone. Probably better than the magazine models who are anorexic for the most part as far as I can see. And through our willingness to look and to question Everything, including the boundaries of sense of this, the sense of boundary. Where is the sense of boundary? We come to a pre-existing stillness, a pre-existing stillness. To see things as it is, 
what it really is, the body as the body. The body as the body, not what we have made out of the body. But this is the body as the body. Not what we've added. Well, if I don't add anything, it just could be really boring, we might say. Or, God, if I go in unprepared and unprotected, this could be really terrifying. But neither of those are true. It's not uninteresting. And it need not be terrifying. So the fourth foundation, the first foundation is the foundation of the body. And we're going to start actually beginning to read the text of that as we prepare this thing. But as I just as a, as a reminder that a foundation is a grounding center, a platform for observation. So we're looking at the grounding. They were grounded in these areas. And they give us an opportunity to examine what these areas are. That's what a foundation is. And each of these exercises, not each of them, some of these exercises uh, create direct perceptions, meaning the immediate perception of what is occurring. And some of them are reflective perceptions, like the body aging or the dying or charnel grounds of what will eventually happen to us. And that is to motivate us to have direct perception. So we'll find both of those within the context of this uh, sutta. And, but all of them, all of the exercises are meant to do is to take us from the personal to the impersonal. That's what they're meant to do, to take us out of the equation of what it is that's going on. So that you can see the sky and hold the clouds within it and not be fooled that the space of the sky is any way crowded by those clouds or limited by the number of clouds that contain, are contained within that sky. The sky is bigger than everything that, everything is held by it and therefore it is larger. Okay, so here we go. The physicality of experience. Bhikkhus, lay people. <laughs> this is the direct path. Direct path means no deviation. This is the actual confrontation between yourself and your belief system so that you are witnessing and verifying and exposing what it is that you believe in, the direct seeing of what you have taken yourself to be. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Now I want to stop here because he lays out the principle in the first paragraph. It says this is, for, this is a direct path for the ending of suffering. And you remember on a previous lecture, 
I mentioned that there are lots of different ways, lots of different continuums to look at the spiritual journey. You can go from stillness, from noise to stillness is one of the ways, right? Or you can go from the personal to the impersonal is another way. But he's taking the path, which is the central core of the Buddha's teaching, from suffering to non-suffering. And he's saying that that's the principle by which all of these different exercises will be held. So don't let yourself forget what the point is of doing these exercises. That you'll find many rapturous states in which you can bathe and prolong your enjoyment of pleasure within these exercises. But is that creating more suffering because when those states are not there, there will be a tension and a contraction that you wish they were. And if you keep in mind that the principle on which this whole sutta is based is that we are going from suffering to non-suffering. And therefore we're going to apply that rule, that principle, to virtually every application that we use. And then we'll be aligned within those applications in a right and correct way. Now, what is interesting, I want to say before we get going here, is that he doesn't first develop concentration. He doesn't have you go off into absorption states and then we're now going to enter the foundation of the body. He just has you go directly into the foundation. No preliminary exercises to steady the attention prior to this. So that we have to find the willingness to steady ourselves within these exercises <clears throat> but that it's not necessary to steady ourselves staring at a candle flame or reciting a mantra or doing whatever uh, concentration exercises are necessary in order to steady, that these exercises themselves will steady our attention sufficiently. That's an important point. Because as we start moving and speaking about this sutta, you'll hear not the emphasis on steadying one's attention so much as is noticing what is occurring where we're, where we're touching that object. So that the awareness is what's encouraged. The mindfulness is what's encouraged, not the concentration element. The concentration element will come along within that observation, but it's not the focal point. The insight is the focal point. This is insight meditation. Okay, so he starts out, and how bhikkhus, lay people, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as the body? Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down, having folded his or her legs crosswise, sets his or her body erect and establishes mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he or she breathes in, mindful he breathes in, Breathing in long, he discerns, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he discerns, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I am breathing in short. And breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. He
he trains himself thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole of the body. He trains thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole of the body. Now let me just stop there because uh, he says, okay, when I'm breathing in long, I'm noticing that I'm breathing in long. When I'm breathing in short, I'm noticing that I'm breathing in short. The quality of the breath, the, what is the observation of the breath? It doesn't, whether the breath is long or short isn't the point. The point is that you're looking beyond just steadying your attention to what is actually occurring, the noticing, the awareness of what the breath is like. Is it one object or many different objects? Is there a temperature element in that object? Where exactly do you feel the breath? So it's that sense that this, that the awareness, the whole picture of what the breath is doing is what's important. Not just that need to um, laser beam our way into a kind of steady absorption quality on one point. And he says, not only that, but he says, we start out and we sit breathing in the breath, we notice the breath, but then we also begin to notice the entire body as we breathe out. As we breathe in, we notice the entire body the whole of the body. This isn't about just the center of our one little belly button expression of our breath. This is the effect of the breath on the entire body breathing in, the effect of the breath on the entire body, the whole of the body breathing out, so that we have a reference point. We're embodying the exercise. We're not just focusing on the, na the concentration of, of what the breath is doing. Now, stabilizing the attention is very important, and I've talked a lot about that. That the mind does need to keep repeatedly returning to a sensation and releasing the need to have to think about that sensation. So, as we learn to do that, we start cleaning up the awareness so that the clouds are no longer covering the sky so opaquely, that there begins to be the known, the, the difference between the breath as it's perceived as a direct physical experience and the breath that has the commentary of how I'm doing breathing. Oh, that breath was, thus, was short. God, last one was longer than I wonder if I'm losing my breath. Maybe I'm getting a heart disease. I mean, on and on we can go. <laughs> and spin out with this thing, just covering the clouds with the sky. It's to stay very simple with this. And the mind, the mind doesn't like simplicity. It likes detail, it likes intensity. It likes variety. Well, there can be a lot of variety in how we look at the breath. We can bring that variety and interest in to our breath if we're willing to perceive the breath not just as a focused single pointed sensation but a variety of different sensations that are occurring in the, con in the component of breathing in and breathing out. <clears throat> Two key words, three really, one is to discern. I discern. When we understand that awareness itself holds a discerning quality, 
You see, I discern. The discerning is the ability of the awareness, is the inherent intelligence within the awareness that sees and discerns that the breath is long or that the breath is short. And more and more you begin to rely upon that basic intelligence that is held within awareness rather than the mental intelligence, the intellectual intelligence that we have with the mind, from the mind's point of view. And that discerning quality is a key reference to the innate ability of awareness, the intelligence of awareness itself. Okay, so let's see here. <clears throat> he trains, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body formations. He trains himself thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the body formations. Just as a skilled turner or an apprentice when making a long turn understands, I make a long turn, when making a short turn understands, I make a short turn. So I don't want to get too, but here he's, actually encouraging tranquility within the nature of the breath. He establishes, how's he put it? I shall breathe in tranquilizing the body formations. Now, uh, when we relax together, when we prepare our, our uh, spiritual journey by relaxing, uh, we are encouraging a tranquilizing, we're calling forth tranquilization. But he's actually going forth. This isn't just the way things are. He's actually encouraging a tranquil, tranquility or a calmness to come in so that it allows a better environment in which to see. This is a skillful means. This is an encouragement that he's bringing forth that, he, that intention can do. And if you want to try it, try it in your sittings because what you'll find is if you just say, well, let, let calmness arise with this breath. Let calmness arise with this out-breath. You'll find that calmness does arise through your intentionality. Now, you can get caught in that very easily because calmness feels really good. And you can then make your practice establishing calm rather than establishing awareness of the object. But he's encouraging, at this level, he's encouraging us to establish some calm, not for the sake of the pleasantness of calm, but because when we are calm, we can more easily discern the differences that are arising within the physical sensations. So he's using calmness as a skillful means to see more clearly. If that's confusing to you, let it go. You have to know why he's doing that and what is he's asking us to do in order for us to see in a more enhanced and clear way. Now, there, it's interesting here, he says, um, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, he abides contemplating the body as the body. I like that. Having put away covet, see, that's the setup. Having put away covetousness and grief for the world, 
he abides contemplating the body as the body. Now we're not going to turn our attention inward if we are still leaning outward. So what he's suggesting here is that there's a certain maturity that we all need to have, have we all need in order for this practice to even work. We have to have some sense that we no longer believe the world is going to provide us contentment by uh, struggling to gain access to uh, our desires and our neediness for the world, that this is somehow going to bring a full contentment to our life. Some, most of us have a growing understanding of that fact, uh, but he's really encouraging more understanding that you, we have to put aside, put away the continuous need for us to reach out and grasp the world and pull it in for us to ever want to go inside of ourselves and really see what is there. We put away covetousness and grief for the world to abide contemplating the body as the body. Contemplation in this sense is not a reflective reflection on something. It's that direct perception that we know is meditation. So no longer believing the world will provide that final contentment you know, the, and when he says um, putting away the grief of the world, many of us carry a very strong residue of grief that the world has wronged me, that I have uh, been, uh, I didn't get my share in life, that events uh, were plotted against my satisfaction, that w life didn't work out uh, t towards uh, the goals that I sought. That's the grief he's talking about, that residue that we many of us carry along with us in our life, that attitude, that basic attitude in which we are disgruntled or despairing about the life that we have lived. He's saying that has to be put away. Not only the covetousness for the world, but also that attitude of having coming up less than what I wanted for the world. I never got my share, you know. Because desiring and grief for the world keeps the world in place. As long as we desire or fear or we're anger, angry at the world, the basic assumptions of ourselves in the world are very fixed and stayed and steady within those assumptions, within that attitude. So how are we ever going to cross the boundaries and access and question these assumptions if the very attitudes we carry carry those assumptions into further and further demarcation. And many of us, if we look, almost all of us, I would assume, carry some kind of attitude in relationship to the world and to the life we live. That this isn't right, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, the despairing quality of our life and how it hasn't lived up to our ideals. And we have to get, we have to, there's a certain uh, spiritual sophistication here, a, spir a spiritual maturity here where we, you know, this is it. This isn't, we're not, we didn't pick the short straw. This is it. And we have to deal with it, that's it. We just put everything aside. The fact that I'm aging, my back hurts, that's it. We just surrender the attitude. Or that the life is ever going to be different from that. 
The back's going to hurt for a long time, probably. Just the way it's going to be. So we wake up, get up in the morning, back hurts. Oh, God, how come I have... You know, you stop saying very quickly, this should not be happening to me. That ends. That's got to end very quickly for us to start really questioning the foundation on which this sutta aims and points. Now there are multiple levels of identification when we start entering this body. Many, many different levels. The first level is the image we have of our body. And as we embody our experience once more, as we are willing to welcome ourselves back in, we're going to meet each level of pain body that these images contain. The image of myself, when I look in the mirror compared to other people my age or other people in general. The image of myself from having lived the decades that I have lived and all the scar tissue that is contained in there. Just the particular way that we address ourselves when we look into the mirror. Ugh. Or whatever we might bring to it. We have to be aware of that. We have to open up our attention so that that is the innocence is there once more. So that we can feel the aversion that we feel about the parts of our body or about the image that is contained within the body. That this isn't big enough and this is too small and all of the different ways that males and females hold in terms of the cultural induced image as well as the personally felt image. And then there is the uh, psychic pain, psychological pain Touching the body brings forth an enormous grief of a lifetime. You can't enter the body and not expose yourself to the grief of your years of having lived. It's contained in the tissues. And as we sit contemplating the body, this grief will be felt. Many people, almost everyone at some point, feels the grief emanating from the, from the cells of a lifetime of disappointment, of despair, of loss of death. And we have to work with these psychological issues. The aversion we have of ourselves, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate this. You know, that, we can't stop there. We can't arrest that as the determined way we're going to perceive ourselves. We have to open that up to further question. What is it that I hate? What is it? Where does this hate? What is it pointing to? What's the pain body? Let's bring forth that pain body. Let's examine that pain body. Remembering that the principles to go from suffering to the end of suffering. Here's the pain. We have to explore that pain with innocence. Re-examine that pain so that it no longer holds the same contraction assumptions that it used to. And it needs our awareness. So the pain body is exposed when we embody ourselves. Calming body fabrication. So this is the mechanisms. This is the mechanical approach. Here we are. 
bringing our attention to bear upon the breath and the body, feeling all the different emotions that arise from the body, the different physical sensations within the body, but staying embodied through that whole process, not allowing ourselves to leave the body and journey off somewhere in terms of some image or uh, fantasy, but keeping ourselves contained within the body and feeling that body as the body. What is it? Asking questions that confront the assumptions which those difficulty and that pain hold, ongoing. And working with the mechanics of the breath so that we continue to focus on sustaining our attention to keep that light shining steadily. And as we focus that attention, we also are aware of the mindfulness quality of where that attention shines so that we're not just trying to focus the attention and steady it, but we're also aware of where that focused, the qualities and nature of where we're fo what we're focusing upon, the nature of the breath, the quality of the breath, the nature of the body, the qualities of the body, the pain of the body, what I, the assumptions that are behind that pain. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as the body, or he abides contemplating the body as the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. Or else he abides contemplating the body as arising factors, or he abides contemplating the body as vanishing factors. So he abides contemplating in the body both as arising and vanishing factors, or else mindfulness or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in, in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Now what is all that? All right. So what is that? When you begin to enter the physicality of your experience rather than the assumptions we made and the story that is associated with those experiences, you see that no experience is a forever. Every, every experience is in transition, is in movement. So the arising, feeling the arising of those experiences, feeling the arising of the emotions, the rising of the pain, the arising of the physicality, and the vanishing, and the termination, and the ending of that emotion, and the ending of that pain, and the ending of that physical experience. And you notice that. It's not a continuous thing. It's not a forever. There's no forever in Buddhism. Everything is in transition and to start residing and allowing that fact to be known to us so that we can begin to quiet ourselves down and begin to embody the truth of this body rather than the storyline that accompanies it. Bare knowledge in mindfulness. Bare knowledge is insight. The insight. I think that's enough for tonight. Thank you all. Can we just sit for a minute or two? I will. Yes. He's playing. The question is uh, when he's talking about 
seeing the body, the internal sense of the body, the external sense of the body, both the internal and the external sense of the body. What is he talking about? From my point of view, all of my commentary is from my point of view. From my point of view, he's playing with that demarcation. He's, you, you, okay, internally, you go back in, you, see, you feel the physical sensations, the heart beating. Externally, you hear the sounds. And this idea of internal and external gets played with by moving internally and externally, inter or on the skin, or internally on the body. And so after a while, as you cross those boundaries sufficiently, holes, spaces are made in that boundary. And you're not so, it's not so certain in awareness what is what, where everything is. The direction of what is in and what is out begins to fade, it gets blurred. And that's not confusion, that's being quiet with oneself and not bringing an assumption to internal and external. Internal and external is merely an assumption we're making in terms of our experience. And the assumption is made in order to protect ourselves, the organism, from what we perceive as the threat that's outside. No forever. In Buddhism is nirvana forever. I'm not completely certain what, what you mean, but um, not picking up a fixed point, if I can just elaborate from what I understand you might mean, not picking up a fixed point, just releasing the need to fixate because every time you fixate as something is this, then you have a that that's fixating upon it. So that dichotomy of fixation, we uproot that dichotomy of fixation by surrendering the assertion to even need to fix. And then that's the abiding selfless presence that is nirvana. The bodily foundations. The bodily fabrications. I had that written down in my notes, and I can't remember what I what I said. <laughs> but um, there, uh, bodily uh, fabrications. I think those are uh, the concepts that we have given each area of our body, from skin to sinews to. And there's an exercise in which 32 parts of the body are examined from the demarcations we've given them. And you keep going to these different things over and over again until you release the need to have to define what it is that you're experiencing. And again, then the soup gets blended so that there isn't the definitions um, inserted into each thing that we land upon. But I may be wrong about that. I'll check. <laughs> I'll tell you next week. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. So we're off and running. And next week we'll have a more thorough understanding in terms of the dialogue 